Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in with me here today. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well and you're not going to want to miss it. You guys, today's case, this is a wild one. I know I say it every time, but this one is just, it's wild. And I really can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. It is unsolved, which I'm always really curious to hear what you guys have to say on unsolved cases. I'm curious to always hear what you have to say about any case, but this one in particular, I'm really interested about because it reminds me a lot of the Ellen Greenberg case that we just covered. And you guys had some really interesting comments about that case. And again, this one is very similar. We're going to be talking about stalking today talking about harassment that went on for years. I do want to put a trigger warning in this case as well. We will be discussing suicide. The topic of that will come up. So if that is triggering for you in any way, feel free to click out of the video. But with that intro and with that all being said, let's jump right on into it today. Cindy James was born on June 12th, 1944 to her parents, Otto and Tilly Hack. So Cindy's birth name was actually not Cindy James. She grew up with the last name Hack and her full name was Cynthia Elizabeth Hack. That was her birth name. However, Cindy did change her last name and we will get into why in a little bit. Now, Cindy's father was a retired Canadian Air Force colonel, and her mother was a stay-at-home mom to Cindy and her five younger siblings. The family lived in British Columbia in the suburbs, and Cindy was known for her generosity. She was just extremely kind, and people said that she had a very strong sense of humor. Now, in July 1966, Cindy ended up graduating from nursing school and went on to marry a psychiatrist named Roy Makepeace, which is a pretty interesting last name. And along with that, the two also had a very interesting age gap. So Roy was actually 18 years older than Cindy. So the two of them got married when Cindy was 19 years old and Roy was 37 years old. In 1975, Cindy was hired to work as a team coordinator at a day treatment center for children who had some behavioral problems, and Cindy actually worked there for 12 years, so she was very involved at this center, and she loved her job. She loved working with the kids. She loved all the families of the children. She really, really enjoyed her time there and felt like she was making a difference. And not only was she very passionate about her job, she was also very good at it as well. However, after 12 years, Cindy decided that that chapter of her life was going to come to an end, and she actually accepted a job at the Richmond General Hospital as a nurse. Now, in the midst of all of that, in July of 1982, Cindy ended up getting a divorce from Roy. Now, this was after 16 years of marriage, and there really isn't a lot of information out there about what their marriage looked like. However, Roy has admitted to hitting Cindy on one or two occasions, and that's really all I could find about what their marriage looked like. So not the perfect picture. 
Now, for the first few months after the divorce, Cindy was really just trying to resume life as normal. She ended up moving out of the house that she was living in with Roy, and Roy stayed at the house. So Roy stays at the house, Cindy moves out, she gets her own house where she has a dog there, and she really is just trying to get back to her life. She was still working as a nurse. And she even picked up some longer hours and was working longer shifts just to kind of, you know, keep herself busy with all the free time that she had. However, four months after her divorce is really when Cindy's nightmare truly began. And this was in October of 1982. And Cindy started receiving very strange and disturbing phone calls from an unknown number. The caller started calling Cindy on a very consistent basis. And whenever Cindy would answer the phone, the person on the other line would either not say anything or would mumble in whispers. So Cindy really couldn't make out what the person was saying or identify who the person on the other line was. The calls became so concerning that on one occasion, Cindy had invited some of her friends over to her house and she received one of these strange phone calls and she picked up the phone. No one really said anything on the other line. She hung up the phone and then realized her living room curtains were open. So she walked to the window and shut the blinds. Now, very shortly after she did that, she got a phone call and the person on the other line said, there's no use in hiding. I know you're in the living room. Now, not only that, it wasn't just the phone calls. Cindy also started receiving some very concerning mail in her mailbox. Now, you guys remember those letters that you would see where people would, you know, cut out different letters in magazines or newspapers and put them together to make little words. Those were the types of letters that Cindy was receiving. So it would be a piece of paper with all of these letters that were put together to make different words. And the words that were being made were very, very disturbing. Some examples of the letters were one said, see you soon with pictures of a woman being choked and another picture of a knife glued to it, as well as multiple that just said, soon Cindy and more mail that just said, we're coming with the words beheaded and blood glued to it as well. Another letter said, Merry Christmas with the words knife, mangled, death, and pain all glued to the letter. So finding these in her mailbox, along with these phone calls, like put yourself in that situation, that would be terrifying. I don't know about you guys, but I would lose, I couldn't handle that. So after the phone calls started becoming more and more consistent and the mail started becoming more and more consistent, Cindy decided that she couldn't just keep this to herself any longer. So she did decide to tell her parents what was going on. She also called her ex-husband Roy because the two of them were still in contact with each other. And Roy, as well as her parents, both advised her to go to the police and file a police report. So on October 12th of 1982, she went to file the first report and police spoke with Cindy's family and her friends just to see if there was any enemies that she had that would want to hurt her or want to harass Cindy like this. However, no one could think of a single person that would want to do this to Cindy. Cindy was by all means a very likable person. She worked with little children. She was a nurse. She had a lot of friends. So there was no one that was coming to mind when police were talking to her family and her friends. Now, shortly after the beginning of the phone calls and the mail, the harassment did 
escalate. Three days after she reported the initial report to police, she had to call them again because someone had actually thrown a brick through her kitchen window. When that happened, police arrived on the scene. They checked out her backyard, were looking around, but they couldn't find anything and they couldn't find any evidence that anyone was ever there. Now that same week, just a couple days later, when Cindy went to bed, right as she was about to get into bed, she noticed that someone had slashed her pillow. And when Cindy saw this, it obviously took her terror to a whole new level because this meant that someone was able to have access to her house. Someone was able to be in her home while she was at work and do this. So after the pillow incident, Cindy calls police again. And this time a different officer is sent out to her house. And this new officer is named Pat McBride. Pat also worked for the Royal Mounted Canadian Police Department, and he drove out to Cindy's house to take the report. And once Pat heard what was going on, he basically was convinced from the get-go that this was Cindy's ex-husband, who was responsible for all of this, Roy Makepeace. Now, when Cindy heard this, she didn't necessarily want to believe it, or she didn't believe it because she told Pat that Roy was actually the person that encouraged her to call the police. And she didn't think that it would make a lot of sense that if he was the one responsible for this, for him to, you know, encourage her to file a report or encourage her to get outside help. It didn't really make a lot of sense in her mind. However, Pat was still very, very convinced, it just made sense. Now, two days later, after Pat took that report, he ended up returning back to Cindy's house and installed deadbolts in all of her doors and also promised to come back daily to check in on her. And he held up that promise. He checked in on her every single day. Now, Pat actually said that in November 1982, so just about a month after all of this started, he ran across Roy patrolling a back alley right behind Cindy's house. And when Pat walked up to Roy and asked him what he was doing, Roy said that he was just concerned about Cindy's safety, so he was monitoring her home. Now, Roy at that time was actually armed. He had two guns on him. But again, Cindy didn't really think that there was anything wrong with that. She just thought that Roy was looking out for her. However, Pat, on the other hand, again, he started going to Cindy's house every day. And lo and behold, the two of them obviously started spending a lot of time together because of that. And due to that fact, the two of them then began a relationship and started dating. The relationship progressed very well and very quickly, so much so that the two of them ended up moving in together pretty instantaneously. However, Pat said that the reason for moving in together was to just secure Cindy's safety and to make sure that she was okay. However, after about a month of living together, Cindy did ask Pat to move out of her house. However, the two of them didn't end their relationship. They continued to date, they just didn't continue to live together. However, what was interesting is that during the month that Pat did live at Cindy's house, there was no harassment at all. There were no harassing phone calls. There were no mail sent to her. There was no you know, physical altercation. There was no throwing bricks in kitchen windows, no pillow stabbing, no nothing. It all stopped. However, once Pat moved out, everything started again. And not only did everything start up again, it only seemed to be getting worse. One day, Cindy actually came home and found three dead cats hanging in her garden with a note that said, you're next. 
She also had her porch lights completely shattered and her phone lines would often be cut as well. Now, as a part of the investigation in January of 1983, the police decided to tap into Cindy's phone using her phone company and her phone provider. So they tap into her phone because they want to see where these calls are coming from. And police were able to get some of the calls. However, the calls were so brief that they weren't able to narrow down the exact location that the calls were coming from. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So that was January, and now we move on to February, where Cindy suffered her first physical attack. And Cindy had a friend named Agnes. The two of them were very close and they hung out very frequently. And one night, Cindy had invited Agnes over just to have a girl's night as they often did. And when Agnes pulled up to Cindy's house, she went up and knocked on the door, however, wasn't getting an answer. Agnes knew that Cindy was home because her car was in the driveway. So Agnes thought it was possible that Cindy was just taking a bath or just couldn't hear her knocking. So Agnes decided to walk around the back of the house to see if she could see Cindy from the back of the house instead. So Agnes walks to the back of the house and that is when she finds Cindy outside crouched down on the floor with a pair of black nylon stockings wrapped around her neck. Now, Agnes quickly helps Cindy get up because luckily she was conscious, she was alive. She helps Cindy get up and takes the nylons off of her neck and immediately asked her what had happened. Now, according to Cindy, right before Agnes got to her house, Cindy decided that she was going to walk out to her garage to grab something from the garage and the garage was detached from the house. So Cindy had to leave her main house to walk to her garage. So she was outside for a small period of time. However, during the period of time that she was outside, someone came up from behind her and wrapped the black nylon stockings around her neck. The person then began strangling her. However, they did not complete the job because they got spooked once they saw Agnes's car pull up in the driveway. So Agnes literally, according to Cindy, missed this attack by seconds. Now, Agnes asked Cindy if she was able to recall anything from her attacker, if she saw what they looked like. And Cindy said that because her attacker attacked her from the back, Cindy could not see who this person was. However, she said the one thing that she was able to notice was that the person who was attacking her was wearing white sneakers. So that was the only thing that Cindy was able to remember. 
Now, after this first physical attack, Cindy knew that she could no longer just wait around and wait for the police to do something or wait for them to continue their investigation. She knew that she had to take matters into her own hands, and that is when she decided to make some life changes. Not only did Cindy move out of her house that she was living in, she also changed her last name. So she changed her last name from Hack to James. So that is why she is Cindy James. As I mentioned in the beginning, that is why she changed her last name. Along with those two things, she also painted her car and dyed her hair. So she was really doing all that she could to try and change her identity and make it more difficult for someone to find her. Now, interestingly enough, the house that she ended up moving back into was actually the house that she lived in with Roy. So it was Roy's house that she moved back into. Roy decided that he would, you know, let her live in the house for her safety and he ended up moving out. So Roy moved out to a different apartment and Cindy moved in back to the house where her and Roy lived when they were together. Now you would think all of those, you know, changes combined would make it very difficult for someone to relocate Cindy and to find Cindy again. However, this did not do anything. The harassment only continued and only got worse. Something new that started happening is that Cindy started receiving orders of raw meat to her house, like these giant orders of raw meat with these threatening notes on them saying, you're next, dead meat, all of these things. It just, it was nonstop. Cindy could not escape it. And when it comes to the police, every time one of these attacks would occur, they would go out to Cindy's house and investigate the scene and see if they could find any evidence. However, they were never able to find anything. And they would see what had happened. They would see the dead cats or the threatening notes or the porch lights being broken or the brick through the kitchen window. They saw all of that, but they weren't able to get any physical evidence that would prove that someone else was there or that someone else other than Cindy was involved. And Cindy's harassment did not just go on for, you know, a month or two months or six months or a year or even three years. Cindy's harassment and the stalking that she received went on for seven whole years. And unfortunately for Cindy, because the police weren't able to find any DNA or any evidence of anyone else being involved in this, they started to get a little fed up and they started thinking that this was kind of a boy who cried wolf situation because they would get a call from Cindy, they would go out, they would see, you know, some sort of scene, but they would also see that there was no evidence to prove that it was anyone. So they would just kind of be like, all right, there's not really much we can do. And then they would go back home. So this started to become a cycle and police were starting to not take Cindy very seriously. And Cindy knew this and she could tell from the get-go that police were not taking this as seriously as they needed to. So Cindy decided to take matters into her own hands and that is when she hired a private investigator. Now this private investigator's name is Ozzy Caban. And when Ozzy first met with Cindy and the two of them sat down and Cindy, you know, told Ozzy the whole story, Ozzy did understand why police might be a little skeptical 
skeptical of Cindy because she did seem very vague when she would explain things. It seemed like there were missing pieces in her story that she was purposely withholding and Ozzy wanted to find out why. So because of this, Ozzy ended up coming up with the idea of setting up porch lights outside of Cindy's house. That way, if anyone approached Cindy's house, she would be able to see it because it wouldn't be just completely pitch black because keep in mind, a lot of these physical attacks were happening at night. Now, along with that, Ozzy also gave Cindy a two-way radio with a panic button. And this panic button is almost like a life alert to just put it into modern times. That's essentially what it was. So if Cindy was in trouble, she would hit the panic button and Ozzy and the paramedics authorities would be notified. Now this two-way radio was kind of like a walkie-talkie and the radio was set up in Cindy's house and Ozzy had the other one. So he was able to hear if any attack or any threat was happening to Cindy. And shortly after giving Cindy this two-way radio on one specific night, Cindy had told Ozzy that she was going to take her dog out for a walk and then come back home. Now, when she got back home, Ozzy heard her on the radio and he also then heard some very bizarre muffling sounds. The sounds were enough to concern Ozzy, but he really didn't know what to do in that moment because he felt as if he couldn't speak into the two-way radio because then that would alert whoever this stalker harasser was that there was a radio and that someone was listening. So Ozzy decided to get in his car and drive over there and hopefully be able to catch whoever this was. However, when Ozzy got there, it was too late and the attacker had already left. Ozzy walked in to Cindy's home and found her laying on the floor in the hallway. So Ozzy ran over to her and noticed that her hand had been stabbed through and through. There was a knife in her hand and on the knife, there was also a note attached to it that said, you're a dead bitch. Now, luckily, Ozzy was able to find a pulse on Cindy and he called paramedics and she was rushed to the hospital. However, when Ozzy asked Cindy what happened, she really couldn't remember anything. Cindy says that she remembers going to sleep that night and then remembers being woken up by someone injecting something into her arm. And Cindy said that after she was injected, she immediately fell asleep. So she was given some sort of sleeping medication or drug to knock her out essentially. And then the next thing she remembered is being in the hospital. So that was really her timeline and her recollection of what happened, which really didn't give Ozzy or the police a lot to go off of. Now, what's very frustrating is that when police arrived on the scene, they did not look for any potential DNA that could be found. And what's frustrating is that they had a weapon. They did not check that weapon. They did not check the knife for fingerprints. They had a handwritten note. They did not check that note for fingerprints. They did not check that note for DNA. And at this point, police were just ultimately believing that Cindy was doing this to herself and that this was more so a cry for attention. 
And after this specific attack, police told Cindy that they were just kind of over it. And of course, Cindy doesn't know what to say, because what do you say? At this point, it's like she's being attacked from every angle. She's being harassed with these notes and these phone calls. She's being physically harassed and physically attacked, and no one's believing her. No one's believing that it's not her doing this to herself. However, the one person that did believe Cindy, along with her parents and her family and her friends, was Ozzy. Ozzy really was her advocate through all of this and believed that Cindy was not doing this to herself. Because quite frankly, why would Cindy be doing this to herself? So Ozzy ends up taking Cindy to a hypnosis after she was released from the hospital in hopes that it could help jog Cindy's brain of some detail that she just couldn't remember. However, that did not work. Now, at this point, police wanted to give Cindy a polygraph test to see if there was any deception on her part and to basically, in their mind, prove to themselves that Cindy was doing this to herself and they were right all along. And that was their point in all of this. So Cindy goes in, she takes this polygraph test and she passes it with flying colors and proves through this lie detector test that she was not the one that was doing this to herself. She didn't know who was doing this to her and she wasn't responsible for it. However, when those results came back, police weren't happy with those results. And they ended up saying that the results didn't mean anything because Cindy was too traumatized from all she had endured to take a polygraph test and have it be accurate. And at that point, you're really contradicting yourself because you're saying two completely different things. You're saying there's no way she could be traumatized because all of these attacks were self-inflicted and she's doing this all for attention and she's doing it all by herself. However, when she proves through the polygraph that that's not the case, then it's those results don't matter because she's too traumatized from everything she's been through. So they really just, they needed to pick a side here. Now, at this point, police decide to interrogate Roy because Roy really is the only person that anyone could think of because he's the ex-husband. And you always look at the husband or the wife or the spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-husband, ex-wife, the whole thing, you always look to them. So police interrogated him for six hours. And after that knife attack, you know, the theory of Roy started to make a little bit more sense because he is a psychiatrist. He would have access to certain drugs. He would know where to inject them. However, Roy denied all of these allegations for six hours. And he thought in his mind that the person that was doing this to Cindy could potentially be you know, a family member of one of the children that she used to work with when she worked at that children's center for 12 years. However, there was never anything to prove that that theory had any legs to stand on. So even though police were pretty much fed up with Cindy, they were almost doing everything they could to prove that she was lying. And in doing so, they staked out her house for about a week, 24 seven. They had a cop car sitting outside of her house and they also tapped into her phone to see if anyone would call. So they did that for about a week and they got no hits. There were no harassing phone calls. There was no mail that was sent to her. There were no physical assaults on Cindy. And again, because of that, that led police to believe even more that Cindy was lying. So it was just, it was one thing after another. 
And everyone was getting frustrated. Cindy was obviously terrified for her life and she was frustrated that no one believed her. The police were frustrated because they felt like Cindy was making this whole thing up. Police had 14 officers that were dedicated solely to Cindy's case, and they even staked out outside of not only Cindy's house, but Roy's house as well to see if there was any suspicious activity there, and there was none. And it always seemed as if whenever the police got involved, the harassment would stop. However, the second the police backed away, the harassment would begin again. And this is really when things turned for the worst. So the next attack happened on December 11th of 1985, and Cindy was actually found six miles away from her home. She was found semi-conscious with a nylon stocking around her neck and another needle mark on her arm. She was also found with multiple cuts and bruises all over her body. She was taken to the hospital, and luckily she did survive the attack. However, again, she did not remember anything about what happened. Now, after she was released from the hospital, Cindy had asked Agnes and Agnes's husband, Tom, if they could come over and spend the night with her for her first few nights after getting home from the hospital. Obviously, she is petrified for her life at this point. So because of that, Agnes and Tom go over to her house. Now, Cindy gets home. Agnes and Tom are there. It's a normal night. Everyone goes to sleep. However, in the middle of the night, everyone is woken up from the sound of rustling coming from the basement of Cindy's house. Now, Tom got up and decided to inspect what was going on, and that is when he found that there had been a fire started in the basement. Now, Tom calls out for Cindy to call 911. However, when she goes to call 911, she noticed that the phone had been cut. So the phone lines were cut and Tom decided his next best bet was to go over to the neighbor and ask the neighbor to call 911. So he runs out of the house. However, when he gets out of the house, he says that he noticed a man just standing and staring at Cindy's home. This man wasn't necessarily on her property. However, he was just standing right before it and was just staring. Now, Tom didn't really think anything of it in the moment and just told the guy to call 911. However, instead, the guy just ran off. So Tom, again, is under a tight time constraint. So he runs over to the neighbors, neighbor calls 911, police arrive, they put the fire out, and they speak to Cindy again. And again, they said that they couldn't find any fingerprints, couldn't find any DNA. So as far as the fire was concerned, police again said that they believe that Cindy caused the fire herself. Throughout the entirety of all of this, Cindy's parents were very worried about her and now more than ever, just because not only can you imagine living your life in a fear like this, however, being told that you are crazy and that you're the one that's doing this and not being believed by the people who are supposed to help you, her parents really started to worry about her mental state. And so because of that, Cindy ended up being placed in a psychiatric hospital for about 10 weeks. And obviously the harassment didn't continue while she was at the psychiatric hospital. However, when she came out from the psychiatric hospital, Cindy then went up to her parents and went up to Ozzy 
and said that she had been withholding some information. Now, after coming out of the psychiatric hospital, Cindy kind of has a realization moment where she comes to terms with the fact that, you know, if she ever wants this to be solved, if she ever wants this to stop, then she needs to be completely forthcoming. And Cindy told, you know, the police and told her family and told Ozzy that the reason she'd been withholding this information was because she was threatened by her attacker and said, her attacker had told her that if she ever spoke about this to anyone or ever said who she thought her attacker might be, then her family and her friends' lives were going to be put in jeopardy and her family would be killed as well. Now, this piece of information was not necessarily information as much as it was a hunch about who she believed was doing this to her. And after coming out of the psychiatric hospital, she finally admitted that she believed that the person responsible for all of this was her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. So at this point, police take this information and they go and talk to Roy again. They tell him that Cindy believes that he's responsible for this. They ask him if he's responsible and he adamantly denies that he has anything to do with this. He's telling police, you know, I gave her my house. I told her to go to police. Like, why would I be involved in this? And so police, when they were speaking to him, were told by Roy that he himself had a piece of evidence that he had not shared yet. And that was a voicemail that Roy had received on his home phone from an unknown caller. Now, Roy played the voicemail to police and all it said was, Cindy, dead meat soon. That was the only thing that was said and it was more so of a whisper and mumbled so police really couldn't get a clear indication of who it was. However, what they did believe based off of the voicemail is that it came from a woman is what they believe. So they believe that whoever called in this voicemail was in fact a woman. Now because they thought it was a woman, they automatically thought it was Cindy. So now this kind of just gives police another reason to believe that Cindy was the one responsible for this, which in reality, again, it's just incredibly infuriating, this entire thing to hear all of these different pieces of evidence come into play and for them just to still chalk it all up to Cindy doing this. Who is that bored that they would do this to themselves for seven years? Now, not only did Roy show police this voicemail, he also disclosed to police that he believed that Cindy had multiple personality disorder and that he wouldn't be surprised if she was doing this to herself as well because, you know, she's very delusional, has multiple personality disorder, which two things. First off, she was in a psychiatric hospital for 10 weeks and not once was she diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. Second thing is that Roy is now beginning to also contradict himself because if he did believe that, you know, Cindy really wasn't in danger, why go to the lengths that he went to move out of his own house and to do all of these things if he thought this was just Cindy being delusional? So this all leads us to May 25th, 1989. And again, the harassment at this point had gone on for seven years. Now for this investigation, police actually collectively spent about 1.5 to $2 million for this specific investigation. So it's not like they weren't putting in resources or time or money backing Cindy's case. 
However, they just kind of got sick of it after a while. And so I just thought that that was an interesting fact to throw in because that is a whole lot of money. But again, this leads us to May 25th, 1989. And on this particular day, Cindy went to the grocery store as well as she went to the bank to deposit her check from work. Now at 10 p.m. that night, she had plans for Agnes and Tom to come over for them to just all hang out together. However, when Agnes and Tom arrived to Cindy's house, they noticed that she was not there. Now, unlike the other time, Cindy's car was not in the driveway this time. And when she went up and knocked on the door, no one answered. Now, you might think that for the average person, this isn't that big of a deal or not that concerning. However, when you look at what Cindy was going through, it was very concerning. And Agnes decided that she wasn't going to waste any time and she went straight to the police station. However, along the way, she decided to drive by some of the spots that Cindy might have been, some of the spots that she went to, including her bank. And when Agnes and Tom drove by it, they found Cindy's car in the parking lot. Now, there was no reason for Cindy to be there that late. Again, not only did she have plans that night, but the bank was closed. So there was no reason for her to still be there. So they drove up to Cindy's car. And while they found Cindy's car, Cindy herself was nowhere to be found. So Agnes and Tom then take it upon themselves to drive to the police station where they were told by the woman at the front desk that they had to wait 24 hours before filing a police report. Now, luckily they were able to flag down an officer and convince them to drive out to the parking lot where Cindy's car was, which they agreed to do. And when they got there, they flashed their flashlight onto Cindy's car and noticed that there was blood on the driver's side door. Cindy's purse was found in the front seat of the car along with her banking cards and ATM deposit slip. Police opened up the trunk of the car and found the groceries that she had purchased as well as a present that had been gift wrapped. They found the receipt in the car from the gift that she had, which was a crochet set and wrapping paper, and she purchased that at 12.43 p.m. The bank slip that was found in her car showed that she had deposited money at 7.58 p.m. Her car was towed at 2.30 a.m., and once police were notified of this and notified that Cindy was in fact missing, they decided to drive over to Roy's apartment. Now they got there at 3.15 a.m. and Roy was at his apartment by himself. They had asked him what he had did that night and he told police that him and a female friend went to dinner and then they went to her house in Deep Cove where he put a stereo system together for her. He said he left her house at around 11.30 p.m. and got to his house around midnight and stayed there for the duration of the night. And this alibi was actually confirmed by the friend that Roy was with. So now police are trying to search for Cindy and the entire city of Richmond was on the lookout for her. They had helicopters, they were searching different bodies of water. They contacted the Vancouver International Airport. They were talking to bus drivers, local residents, store owners. They were talking to everyone. And that leads us to June 8th, 1989. So about two weeks after Cindy went missing, Cindy's body was discovered by a road maintenance worker in the front yard of an abandoned house a mile and a half away from where her car was found. Cindy was found laying on her side. She was fully clothed and her hands and feet were bound and tied behind her back. She had multiple bruises and wounds as well as an injection mark on her arm. 
Now, the thing about the location of where Cindy was found is that this was a very heavily populated area. You had a lot of people walking in front of that house every single day. And so because of that, it led a lot of people to believe that Cindy more than likely was just dumped there very shortly before she was discovered because it really didn't make a lot of sense for the area that she was found in if she had been laying there for two weeks because someone would have found her. So the initial theory was that she had been held captive for two weeks and then killed and then her body was discovered. However, the autopsy said otherwise. The autopsy indicated that Cindy had died on the same day that she went missing. Now, there was an injection mark on her arm, and it was revealed that she had been given a very high dose of morphine and florazepam, which is a drug very similar to Valium. She again had a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. However, police never found the needle anywhere near or in Cindy's car, so the needle had to have been taken with whoever did this. Now, this is where you're absolutely going to lose your mind because police, even after seeing Cindy's body, weren't convinced that this was a homicide. In fact, they thought it was a suicide. They thought that Cindy herself injected herself with a needle, walked a mile half away from her car, tied her hands and feet behind her back, and strangled herself with a black nylon stocking around her neck. All while no one saw her do this, and all while she laid there for two weeks. Now, her official cause of death by police was labeled as a morphine overdose. However, the coroner disputed that, and they actually didn't label her death as a suicide, homicide, or accidental. They just said unknown event. Now, here's what we know about morphine, and if there's anything I'm missing about this, please feel free to add that in the comments. However, morphine, supposedly, from everything that I've read, reaches its peak in about an hour. That's when it's at its peak. However, it starts kicking in anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes of initially being injected. Now, let's just roll with the cop's theory here for a second that Cindy injected herself. This was a suicide. She did this all herself. If Cindy had injected herself with morphine and then walked a mile and a half, the morphine would have kicked in on her walk and with the drugs that were found in her system, because it wasn't just morphine, she would not have been able to tie her hands and feet behind her back and suffocate herself with a nylon stocking. Now, something else that's very interesting with how Cindy's body was discovered, she was found not wearing any shoes, but the soles of her feet were very clean. Now, if she did this herself, if this was a suicide, if she walked a mile and a half from her car all the way to where she was found by herself, her feet would not have been clean. They would have been dirty from walking a mile and a half, but police did not think so, and they still really don't. So that is the case of Cindy James. Those are the facts as we know it, but I wanna run through some theories real quick. And the first theory is not going to surprise anyone. The first theory is that Roy Makepeace, Cindy's ex-husband, was responsible for this. Roy, like I said earlier, was a psychiatrist who had access to drugs and would know how to administer them. He also knew Cindy really well and was kind of her confidant in the beginning of all of this, which would have given him access to where Cindy was going, what she was doing, what her thoughts were on all of this. And he really just could have been pulling the biggest reverse psychology card in the history of reverse psychology cards. And also the fact that Roy and Cindy got divorced in July of 1982 
And this all started, the harassment started just four months later in 1982. It does kind of show that this divorce could have been a trigger for Roy because it's just very coincidental that this all happened shortly after the divorce. Now, the second theory here is that Pat McBride, the police officer who dated Cindy for a short period of time, was responsible for all of this. Now, people think that even though he didn't really get involved in this case until after the harassment began, people think it is suspicious that while he was living there, the harassment stopped. And people also believe that because he was a police officer, he had access to the entire investigation and knew the ins and outs of it and had access to a lot of things that the public just doesn't have access to. And people also believe that because of the police's frustration in this case, it could have been due to the fact that they figured out it was Pat and they were covering for him. However, Pat McBride was actually stripped of his police badge after all of this happened, not because of Cindy's case. However, there were multiple threats against women that he had made and he was stripped of his badge because of it. Now, both Roy and Pat McBride have passed away at this point, so we really will never get any other answers from them, unfortunately. Now I want to talk about a third theory that I haven't really seen very much. However, it's one of those that I just can't really shake out of my head and it could fall into the other two theories too. There's ways that this could be maneuvered and so just going to come out and say it. Now the third theory in this is that a woman was also responsible for this. Now, whether that means that a woman was solely responsible for this or she was working with another person, whether that be Roy, whether that be Pat McBride, whether that be someone completely different. Because if you think about it, the voicemail that Roy received came from a woman. Police were able to distinguish that much. Along with that, multiple of the attacks that were made on Cindy included a pair of black nylon stockings. And this is not to say that this couldn't happen or this would never happen, but it is very random to choose black nylon stockings as your weapon of choice. There's a lot of different ways you can suffocate someone. There are a lot of different ways to asphyxiate someone than with black nylon stockings. And it wasn't like it was the same pair every time this person had multiple of them, which leads me to believe that either this person could have been a woman who just owned a lot of black nylon stockings, or it means that this is a man who had easy access to those. It could have been a married man, or it could have been a man with a sister. Now, because it seems as if Cindy's body was dumped at the place where she was discovered, it makes me believe that this probably wasn't just one person. If this was a woman, I feel like they would have a partner in all of this. It does make me wonder if Roy was working alongside a woman. Like if Roy had a partner in this who was a woman who was helping him out with all of this, he could have asked the woman to send the voicemail. He could have asked the woman to help him with little things, the black nylons, things like that. And that may be a reach. It probably is a stretch. However, it's just, just in my mind. 
So those are the theories I have for you. And I cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about this one. So with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday and then again, every Thursday on YouTube as well. And you're not gonna wanna miss it. I will be back in a couple days with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.